Our psychotherapists are not perfect. They do not leave a, lead a perfect people, life. That's what a lot of people consider. A lot of people consider, oh, you're a therapist, you must have your shit together. Like, absolutely not. You know, I'm still a human being. Um, still have flaws, still have, you know, issues in life. Might be able to deal with them a little bit better. Might be yeah. able to uh, hold out a little bit longer before the old mental health, you know, snaps. But you know, we're all only human. And, and the other side of that then is there's a lot of fucking shit therapists out there doing a lot of damage. True. I'm not one of them. <laughs> I, I hope. Disclaimer. I'm not one yeah, of them. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Mental health. Mental health. You're very welcome along to the very first episode of this new podcast series. It's called Straight Talking Mental Health, where we're going to explore mental health. But we're going to do it differently. We won't sugarcoat it. We'll call it as it is and be totally honest, because honesty is the first step towards better mental health. My name is Peter Dunn. My name is Alan Clark. And that dude right there, he knows his shit. He's no ordinary man. He is a master of science. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> Let's give that a bit more beef, okay? Master, Master of Science! science. Dun, dun, dun. Yes, I love it. <laughs> How's that? Is that all right for you? You're happy enough with that intro? Yeah, yeah. Not, yeah, not exactly the superhero theme music I had in mind, but you know, I'll take it. <laughs> Throughout this series, we want to tackle every aspect of life that affects our mental health, from anxiety, depression, self-esteem, suicide, stress, mental health, and popular culture, and of course, loads, loads more. And we want to get to the root causes and find out how we can deal with our mental health and, of course, the mental health of our friends and our family. I know very little about mental health, and if you're like me and you think you should know a little bit more, or you're struggling with your mental health and you're really going to like this podcast because we're going to journey through this together so leave the stupid questions up to me i don't mind i'm used to asking stupid questions and there will be a lot of them throughout this series trust me so the great thing is there is no one else out there that we can find that's doing a podcast like this so it's really really exciting isn't it yes yes it is <laughs> yes, was, yes, was it that is. the cue in to me or <laughs> no I, th- I think it's very safe to say that there was absolutely no one that will be doing a podcast like this <laughs> there's definitely no one out there at the moment doing anything like no. this no yeah, we have we, we've we have. gone through the shit so you don't have to <laughs> <laughs> it, it will be something different big time absolutely and I, I thought we'd be in the queue of like four or five different other podcasts doing this but nobody yeah. nobody yeah. has decided I'm very surprised by it I think you know I, I think that a part of the problem is people that shouldn't be given fucking mental health advice are given mental health advice you know social media influencers and stuff like that or someone that's read a fucking self-help book mm-hmm. and all of a sudden they're the Dalai Lama like that's like Jesus Christ with the podcasts I think you know any of the ones that are kind of informative are boring any of the ones that well no i actually haven't found any that are a bit of decent crack so i i think we can we can kind of marry those two worlds up together of having a bit of crack with it kind of giving it as you say straight talking hence hence the title of the, of the podcast and also kind of informative you see we're not just two gobshites who got together and decided to put a podcast together about mental health. This dude is actually a psychotherapist. I'm a gobshite. He's a psychotherapist. Yeah, but I'm a psychotherapist, but I am also a gobshite. <laughs> They're like not it. exclusive. You <laughs> 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 could be a gobshite and a psychotherapist. Uh, <laughs> Now, later on, we're going to talk to you about the importance of mental health and the importance of therapy. 
And do let me be honest with you. Mm-hmm. You are the last person I ever thought would become a psychotherapist. <laughs> a psycho maybe, but not a psychotherapist. Jeez. Like, I'm sure many, many teachers <laughs> in my schools would agree with it. <laughs> but I'm really I'm really looking forward to hearing your story about um, how you became a psychotherapist. Mm. But first, let's tell this lovely listener how we know each other. We are mm. hardcore rappers. <laughs> Believe Retired. it or not. Retired. <laughs> I don't know. Do you, have, do you ever retire as a rapper? Uh, I mean, I miss it sometimes. There's a few times an odd lyric might come into my head. Yeah. If, you think of it, if you think of a witty line, I'm like, oh, I wish I was still dropping a few rhymes. That yeah. Would, that, would, that would sound good. I do miss it sometimes. We were in a group yeah. called The Good Men. Mm. Uh, myself, Alan, and DJ Lee. We, um, DJ Lee of Too Fat. DJ Lee, yeah, of Too Fat fame. And Podge and Rog, I believe. Yeah, yeah I think yeah, he showed his face on that a few times. Uh. What's your favourite good men tune? Oh, oh wow. Um, I tell you what, let's throw a few out there, okay? You've got introducing. Where of all the good men go me right here. Do you these banging hip hop in your rear? We persevere. From the front to the rear to give you what you want to hear us act crystal clear. You thought we disappeared. I think probably introducing because. So the good men uh, initially used to be myself and Lee. Mm. Um, and so I, I'll, I'll tell the story of how, how you came into that, how you came into the phrase. So it used to be just the two of us. Uh, and Lee is he is not on the mic on stage, you know, hyping up the crowd. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you're you're work you're working the crowd on your own. He was like Terminator X from Public Enemy. He speaks with his hands. So a lot was left to me. So when we were doing gigs, a lot was left up to me to kind of be the voice of it all. Um, and really missed someone to to kind of bounce back and forth with. And then so I I ran a website at the time called IrishBeats.com, and it was a it was an Irish hip hop website. Um, this is way before Irish hip hop just completely blew up. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Let me just yeah. put that out there. This is what about O three, O three, O four, was it? Oh yeah, must be about that. Yeah. And uh, so I heard your stuff, and I was like, oh shit, this this guy's this guy's really good. And uh, I think I, I think I sent it to Lee, and I was like, you know, what do you think of this lad? And I was like, oh, he's really good. And I think I, I think I I sent you an email, or I contacted you then about would you be interested in? Yeah, in I don't know if I've got an email or a text or something. I think it's took yeah. me a number on the. Uh the CD, yeah, I still yeah. have that actually. A little bit of nostalgia. Well, when this podcast takes off, you know, you can sell it and memorabilia, and I'll make a fortune. <laughs> <laughs> will I? Fuck? Yeah. yeah. So that's that's how we that's how we got together as as, as the three of us. Mm. Um, and I think introducing then was the was the first song we we actually did together. I think was it? Yeah. So the first track we did was introducing. So that was uh, yeah, that always went down very well. Went down well at live gigs. Yeah, yeah, um, it was yeah. I think that we, was kind of uh, finale one, wasn't it? We we normally finished with that. I think um, we no, we started to finish with this one here. It's called "Keep It Rockin'." Oh, yeah. I used to like. I like. I like that song. I like doing it live could never guess because uh, there was an original no. version of that that I had done when it was just myself and Lee and I was never happy with uh, I was just never happy with the song yeah. it just never came together as a as a recorded track and and then when we when we started doing a live and Lee started cutting in with the uh, the old the old school beats the Run DMC type beats and stuff like Sucker that Sucker MCs and yeah, DJ yeah. Shadow and, yeah. and, and we, we we changed the lyrics around then you know kind of playing on some of the old school tracks we, we kind of 
mm. chopped the lyrics around and we and we rapped over. So he's actually like I used to like doing that song when we when we did it live. We always had that good rapport on stage as well, which was you know we always kind of knew when when to come in with the other one. You always mm. <laughs> there's been a few times you had to tell me my own fucking lyrics. <laughs> <laughs> Forget my own lyrics on stage. Like, I was like, Jesus How Christ. many times, right, when the hook was just finishing and you're thinking to yourself, yeah, my verse, and you go, yeah, yeah. fuck, fuck, Draw what blank. is it, what is it, what is yeah, it, what is yeah, it? And yeah. a split second you go, yeah, here we go. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. But we were always good at coming in there, you know, if you were kind of losing breath at the end of a verse, you'd, you'd, you'd drop in. You'd you drop would, in yeah, lyric, yeah. You'd, you'd know when the other yeah. would need a hand or a dig out yeah. or something like that. Because I know yeah. there was times where you struggled with your voice. And I know mm-hmm. you were like mm. sipping honey and shit before that. Oh, I don't know, honey used to turn your stomach completely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And honey is great for vocals, but it's good for vocals like coffee is good for motivation. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it'll give you a little boost, but you'll be yeah, back to where yeah. you were, you know. Uh, but I used, be, um, I used to be drinking it during in between songs. Yeah, I remember that. You know, I think once once you get on stage then the kind of adrenaline hits and you and you and you you know, you kick it up again. And you know, as mm. I look back now, I was like, nah, you needed to kind of sit back in the pocket. Let, let the microphone do the work. What about Three Irish Rebels? I used to love doing that track. Three Irish Rebels. You, like, you produced that mm. one, didn't you? I used to, I yeah, did, I, yeah. I like that one. Yeah. I said war for the treble. Lee got the level. It's P to MC on the detox never. AC on the mic, he's clever. G-U-D's, we leave the beats ever. Give it up, cause we well, never no, yeah, give it up. I like that one. Uh, uh, really, I really like uh, Toward the end, the, you know, the last, the last few songs, I never wrote lyrics down. I used to just keep yeah. it in my head. I, I actually stopped writing and I just, I just be listening to a song on repeat on repeat if I was driving mm. and I'd be kind of making the lyrics up you know going over and over and over so I actually stopped writing yeah because I remember you were telling me about that technique and I thought to myself I can't remember fucking 16 bars without mm-hmm. writing them down mm-hmm. but I tried it um, I tried it on a track we did called Nothing Like Hip Hop Music I should fix up a duct tape so I've no say I'll embrace this I'm not a wholesale for fuck's sake I'll share this the right way as long as I hold the mic you won't go straight I actually wrote that while working for Westmead County Council when I had nothing to do. (laughs) I was uh, in road engineering. Road, that's what it was. Yeah, I'd I'd all my shit done for the day and I thought to myself, I have my little MP3 player with beats on it. I'm going to stick my headphones in. I'm going to listen to the beats that Lee sent on and I'm going to try this. And it was was amazing because I think as a a rapper or an MC, you're trying to do is tighten your lyrics as you go along. You know, you don't want to just rhyme Mm -hmm. the last word in every sentence with the last word Mm -hmm. in every other Mm -hmm. sentence or whatever. You know, you want to rhyme nearly every word or every second word together. And I thought actually it was easier to do it that way Mm -hmm. by memorizing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. There's times where we're trying to fucking outdo each other. Mm. I want to be mm. better than you. You want to be mm. better than me. And mm. that's great because it gives you more of a motivation and a kick up the hole. Yeah, yeah. To kind yeah. of be a better writer, be a better rapper. And it gives yeah. us a better product in the end. You know, listen yeah, back yeah, to some yeah. tracks. I hear them and I go, oh, fucking Alan killed me on that. Like, how did he fucking... Right. I, I never... Yeah. <laughs> that's funny. You know, it's, funny it's funny you mention that. I never had that with you. Really? <laughs> yeah. I was always like... Oh fucking hell! Peace after doing great. It was never to try and beat you. I was like, geez, I gotta kind of get it, get up here. Kind of like when you're when you're playing golf with someone that's good. It makes you focus that bit more. Of course, yeah. You know, if you're out with your mates, you'll just be hacking around. But when you're playing someone that's playing off a low handicap and he's pinging it down the fairway every time, like and he's yeah. par, and you're like, oh fuck, I gotta get the game face on here. Like I gotta, I gotta really get and my shit together. And he's up again, big time. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. On low down and dirty, that mm. was your track. 
I that was, you were yeah, yeah, you like were just honest, incredible yeah. on that. Um, yeah. There was one line on it, and uh, actually, this is this is a testimony to you <laughs> and how good you are on this track. I can't remember any of my lyrics on it, but I can remember yours. Do you remember any lyrics from from Lord Down and Dirty? I don't remember any. Of them. I remember there was one you finished off uh, the verse with. I'll hack your face off, rip it down to the bone, and then I'll walk around town wearing it is my own. That was just a lyric yeah, moment. Oh, like, <laughs> if you're battling with somebody, then they just have to go up. Right, I'm done. Good luck. Mm. No, you've done it. <laughs> you know? Yeah. But, yeah, uh, yeah. It, it was one of the angrier tracks. Yeah. What about Drunk and Disorderly? That was good crack. It was good crack. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. yeah. Uh, I was always very conscious of uh, the paddy wackery of it. You know, that's that's mm. that's that's what I was always afraid of. That uh, to play it to the to play it to the stereotype. Um, and the irony being is, I'm not even a big drinker. I don't think you are either. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you've developed you to develop the drinking habit, yeah. <laughs> Fucking kids will do that to your pee. <laughs> yes, they will. Yes, they will. <laughs> yeah, no, that was good crack. And to be honest with you, you know, when you look back at uh, at what we did, the track drunkenness orderly. I'll play a clip mm. from it now. But the likes of that, it's sold when you're performing it. People sang it back to you. Yeah, yeah. Um, and yeah. people responded yeah, it was, it was to it. It was a chant. It was a real chant when we did it live. Absolutely. Because you're drunk and disorderly. Yeah. I, t- I thought anytime we made music, we made hip hop music. Mm, mm, you know, mm. we didn't go, well, you know something, the crowd would like this or the yeah, public yeah, would like this yeah. or this will sell. I don't think we ever looked at that. Maybe drunk and disorderly no. was a little bit like that where you went, okay, mm. you could kind of market it maybe a little bit mm. if you wanted to. But I think in general, we just. We did whatever we wanted, and if it worked, it worked. If it didn't, yeah, then yeah. who cares? Yeah, We're yeah, enjoying yeah. it. We're doing it. Yeah, and I think that that was, I mean, that's all something I tried to do, and I think you all was the same, like, even down to our accents. I mean, we, we rapped in our own accents. We didn't rap in an American accent. We didn't mm. rap about, you know, American stuff. We didn't rap about drugs because neither of us did drugs. You know, now, mm. now you might be taking painkillers for a dodgy <laughs> D or a dodgy back, but <laughs> at the time, we were a little bit younger and a little bit healthier, perhaps, but... Um, but you know, it was just it was just all about kind of trying to be being authentic, and you know, and mm. I think and I hope that's something that that comes true within the podcast as well. That uh, you know, we're not being anything we're not trying to be. You know, I, I'm here talking to my friend Peter. I just happen to be a psychotherapist. You know, I'm not here as a psychotherapist talking, you know, to someone. I'm just trying to be an authentic person, speak genuinely with my friend. Yeah, but bring in the knowledge that I have. In, in within that landscape then as well. Exactly. How many times after a gig did somebody come up to you and say, I don't like hip hop, but mm-hmm. we played the Derby Festival or the, the Derby Budweiser. Festival. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, we played, we played that twice, that I think, did we? Two or three times. Yeah. You yeah. know, and how many times where you'd look out from the stage and be a load of people around, be lads with slabs of cans, mm-hmm. nodding along, mm-hmm. chanting along, and you're going, Jesus, I'm yeah, sure they're not yeah. into hip hop. But they can appreciate yeah. this. They can enjoy this. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. you know, for every one of those gigs, there was also ones where, like the ones you'd be doing in Dublin, where the which every band has to do the kind of showcase nights. You know, mm. you're not getting paid, but it'll be great exposure. And you and you're to the six people them. who are watching. <laughs> yeah, know? yeah. And they're only there to see their friends' band that's yeah. on next, like you know. And that's I think a lot of people don't you know don't appreciate that. That's that's the kind of paying your dues kind of thing that you have to, that has to be done as well. And for me, that's when, that's when my heart started falling out of it. I just wasn't enjoying it anymore. You know, and I'm sure every, every musician can, can relate to this. Mm. You know, you're not getting paid. It's costing you money. It's costing you time. You know, for every 
great gig, you know, you're you're playing however many, you know, bad ones or near yeah. empty ones. And, you know, for me, I, I just I just stopped enjoying it. Why? Why? Because we never really had the big thing of we're breaking up. We just kind of, I don't know, maybe it kind of felt like it was a natural end or what was your thoughts around it all when, when I finished? I think you fucked off. You did a Robbie Williams and you decided, I'm too big for this shit. I'm going off. <laughs> <laughs> definitely, definitely no. wasn't that. I don't know. Only take the piss. Yeah, it kind of it came to a natural conclusion, I think. Like mm. that, I, mm. I was the same. I mean, I was at a point where I was finished in college. I was qualified and I went to work full time. And mm. you're going from work into the car straight up to Dublin in the evening, straight up to soundcheck. You're fucking rushing to yeah, get in because yeah. you're told soundcheck at six, lads. You're on at nine. You get there mm-hmm, at six and you look mm-hmm. around. Um, this place open or what? Um, yeah. yeah, we're just waiting on the sound man. Sound man shows up at fucking seven and yeah, you're trying yeah. to do a sound check and you're going, I'm fucking starving with the hunger. I need to get out to get a bite yeah, to eat. Yeah. Meanwhile, you're paying Dublin rates parking, mm-hmm. costing you a fortune. You've paid for your diesel yeah. and everything to go up, as you say. You're doing it for free. Yeah. And next of all, you have to listen to a band tuning up and you have to listen to a drummer kicking a fucking kick drum for half an mm, hour going mm, boom, mm, boom, boom, mm, boom, mm, boom. Mm. Uh, I just need a little bit more top on that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, you, you, you get on, you do your set and, you know, you might get a good reaction. You might get a meh kind of reaction or whatever. Um, but you finish it. You go home, you're home for about one o'clock in the morning yeah. and you're up again for work the up next day and you're going, morning. what is the fucking story here? What's the point? Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. So yeah. I don't know if it was a case of we weren't good enough mm. or we could have been better or mm. we went as far as we could have done. But mm. I think just the the negative started to outweigh the positives. Yeah, yeah. And it's, yeah, it's about, yeah, same experience as myself. Yeah. I think you were at a stage there where you started acting mm, and that's right. it yeah. turns out you're a gifted actor <laughs> and a lot of people were saying to you you're very gifted at this mm-hmm. so we have fuck all time in general as adults so yeah 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 you can't divide your time into doing a few things you have yeah. to focus on something and i think you needed to do that because you were told you have a gift at this you need to explore it so in order to do that you have to sacrifice something and that was yeah, make yeah music yeah because i think you know you can't half-arse everything like you know because if you try and do everything that's what you will do you'll end up half-arsing Mm. You know, because like that, there wasn't a time at the time I was I was married at the time I had kids as well and you know just I just couldn't do it you know mm. and uh, I was I was enjoying the acting you know like I said I was getting getting a lot of props and that's to, to use the hip hop expression and that that was something I was enjoying and turned out it was something I was I was good at the acting the acting took off then um, did a lot of plays um, first play I did won the won the All Ireland finals and on the drama festival on the circuit uh, I only had a small part and then started getting bigger parts uh, started getting asked by different groups would I be interested would I would I do would I play this part would I play that part started winning awards then myself and the fucking awards just kept on coming and then in 2012 so that was that was the kind of that was the way I was kind of going and I was winning awards I was doing plays doing some professional work and then in was it 2009 2010 this this is the ironic thing about about acting so I was doing all these lead roles in, in plays and stuff like that and like I'm still trying to get extra work on the tutors you know and it's like yeah. like I fucking I've been doing classes I'm you know training in this shit I'm you know, I'm earning my stripes. And I actually met my ex-fiance uh, on the set of the Tudors. And she was there just because she was a pretty face. <laughs> and I was kind of like, what the fuck? Like, yeah. yeah, but that, but that's acting. 
you know, it's like, well, if you look good, that that'll do. You know, we can mm. we can we can tolerate shite acting if at least if you look pretty kind of thing. That kind of started the kind of love for the acting kind of drain in a way as well. Plus, I was engaged. I was set to be married. All the plans for the future and stuff like that. Mm. And then um, 2011. So at that point, I kind of had a bit of a midlife crisis. The job I was working in at the time, at the whim of the boss at any given moment, you'd be put on a three-day week. And it'd be like, oh, three-day week, lads, business is down. Okay, when? Monday. And this would be on a Friday afternoon. Like, So I was kind of thinking, shit, I need to, I need to do something. Like, you know, I need to, need to have a think about what I'm doing. Um, the issues in the relationship. And, you know, I kind of wanted to work on my own shit. In, in my own head that was that was playing into the into the relationship did you suffer from mental health then uh i i have all my life i have since 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 teenager i've suffered with depression so and it was just issues in the relationship you know relationships mm. have problems and you know we're supposed to be married and i was like well i need to, i'm gonna at least work on my shit you know on the part that i'm contributing um so i started going to personal therapy was put back on the tree that week couldn't couldn't afford everything trying to save for a wedding and stuff like that and uh the relationship broke up anyway and i was set to start college to start studying psychotherapy i was to do the certificate course it was an evening course once or one or two evenings a week i was to start that on the tuesday and myself and the ex-fiance broke up on the friday <laughs> the friday beforehand Jeez. So here, here I am thinking, oh, this is it. I'm set to get, you know, married, re- remarried. You know, mm. do it, do it proper. This is it. This is the whole, the whole shebang. My life is falling into place here now, and then it all falls apart. And then three days, four days later, I'm starting college <laughs> as as an adult uh, studying psychotherapy. That was kind of my last short of dice in in personal therapy. You know, the therapist was like, well, you know, what would you like to do? You know, you know, if you thought what you'd like to do with your life was like. I'd actually, I'd love to do this. I've always had this this kind of mind, very an analytic kind of mind. Why am I this way? Why is that person that way? And mm. it's always something I've been interested in. And my, my interest in psychology actually stemmed back to being a teenager. And it sounds very weird when I say it, but a lot of interest in serial killers. Um, kind of Science of the Lambs was kind of big at the time. And I was like, Jesus, what makes a person do that to someone? And I started, I, so I would have read a lot of books on serial killers from a pure psychological point of view of jesus how, how could another human do that to another human mm. um and in there it was like in in my own therapy at the time i was like i'd actually like to do this he says i think you'd be really suited to it you know you have that kind of mind you know that's that's the way you think anyway and you know i'd always say to people when you know when people be talking to me and say like, oh well oh well you're a therapist so this is so you think this way no no i'm a therapist because i think this way this is suited to my personality that introspective an- analysis kind of part so I started, uh, started college, uh, started doing a certificate course and was really at a point of going, if this doesn't work, I'm fucked because I don't know what else I want to do. How old uh, were you when you did that? 33, yeah, 33, I think. Yeah. So at a point uh, where you go, right, I should be in a job where I'm, uh, I'm going to be in for life. It's sustainable or whatever. And we always imagine at that stage that whatever we're doing, we're in it for the long haul or else... You know, mm-hmm. you, you had kids as well. They take a lot of work. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, you had your job as well. Do, yeah. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. you know, you'd imagine at that point you'd be going, no, I'm just, I'm settling in for the long run. Like, that was a brave decision to go, I'm 33. Let's retrain and become something else. Yeah, it was very much a midlife crisis. I mean, I hope, hopefully I get to fucking more than 66. <laughs> well, when you think but, about uh, it. It probably wasn't well, I mean, a crisis. Well, it was very much probably an existential kind of crisis. And, you know, people joke about a midlife crisis, but it's very real. I mean, midlife crises are very real. 
you know, we get to that. I mean, we used to only live up until about 30. True, yeah. You know, it's only in the last couple of hundred years that, you know, our life life has extended. So mm. now we get to this kind of point that for hundreds of thousands of years, we never got to. And in an existential kind of point of view, we get to that point of what am I doing? What's the purpose of my life? What's mm. giving me life meaning? And is this what I want to do for the rest of my life? I was coming at it from here I am about to get married again and this is it. You know, I'm not fucking getting married again. This is this is this is it now. This is it all. Mm. Um and then thrown into thrown into upheaval. Uh so thankfully, you know, I did the certificate course, liked it. Uh, did well at it, you know, went, went on to do the degree. So just after, um, you know, when I, when I started studying, I was just desperate to get back into acting. You know, I just needed to throw myself into, into something. Mm. Um, and I started, I, I got, uh, I got asked to play the lead role in a, in a play called The Good Father. Um, it's a, it's a two-hander. What's a two-hander? Um, it's just two people. Oh, all right. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So did that, did that on the circuit, just mopped up the awards. Every festival competed in was winning awards. Sometimes you win two awards, win best actor and then best moment of theatre, stuff like that. Um, and then that culminated in winning best actor at the All-Ireland Finals. Um, now, unfortunately, I was I was doing the degree at the time as well. So I kind of went out at my peak <laughs> instead of going back and sticking with it. Um, if you're rehearsing a play, you know, you're probably doing a couple of evenings a week, you know, getting closer to showtime. You're going to be doing, you know, weekends. Uh, and on top of that, then you're trying to write assignments. On top of that, then, you know, I'm starting to do my clinical placement. So I've seen clients. I wasn't getting paid. Um, you have to do your personal therapy. So on top of the personal therapy that I'd already done, as part of my degree, I had to do 50 hours of personal therapy. So, so you have to go for- see... A therapist yeah, yourself. Yeah. You have to go, yeah, yeah, exactly. You're your own first client. You gotta work through your own shit like mm. um so you can better serve your own clients. Did the certificate, did the diploma, did the degree, stepped out of that, started building a private practice. Uh, the job I was in, put on three day a week again, but I was, you know, word of mouth reputation was kind of getting around mm. about about me as a therapist. So the day job I was in then I got I got made redundant. So I was there nearly ten years fucking went not even a card not even a fucking thanks uh at the time i was i was fixing watches <laughs> i never forget on the last day boss comes in with a brown envelope and i was like fucking nice one finally he fucking came correct oh there's a battery fix that watch there your last job <laughs> i was like you prick not even a card not even you know nothing um yeah. so um luckily the practice was taken off and it, it kind of went then from from strength to strength did so my degree is in so, so a BSE so before I was a master of science master, master of science, science. <laughs> <laughs> yeah there you go I have a bachelor of science honours degree in counselling and psychotherapy and then my master's is in child and adolescent psychotherapy so but what essentially what I do with with the knowledge that I gain from the masters is I kind of reverse engineer adults so when an adult comes in with a particular problem, I will have a pretty good idea of what the childhood was like, which has brought them to that point. Okay. Or if they, tell, if they tell me about an issue that might have been there in childhood, I can know, well, if that happened, this is likely what's happened in adulthood. Does that happen? Oh, yeah, that's exactly what I'm like. So mm. it's a bit of kind of reverse engineering um, that I kind of use that knowledge for. You know, and when, when I was doing my degree, I did my research on um, religious beliefs in adolescence. So with the, with the kind of theory that there'd be more atheists in sixth year than in first year, because first years are coming off the back of their confirmation and still very much under parental influence and stuff mm. like that. 
where it has to be uh, more atheist than in, in sixth year. So I had to contact uh, the local school to uh, see if I could do my research in there, hand out questionnaires, question the first years, question the sixth years. Um, and one of the teachers, the religion teacher, was one of the religion teachers that I had when I was in school that I got kicked out of. <laughs> so I got, I got kicked out Why did out you get kicked out? Why did you I get got, kicked out? Because you're a bone little fucker, were you? <laughs> I, I, I was and I wasn't. I, I'll, tell, I'll tell you exactly. I'll tell you exactly why I got kicked out. My parents were parents were in the process of breaking up again. My parents were on again, off again the whole time. Uh, I wasn't turning up to school. I, I had so much shit going on at home. I didn't want to be in school. If I did come to school, I'd sit down the back, hoodie up, head on the desk. Mm. Didn't, didn't want to know anything. If I went in in the morning, I most certainly did not go back. Um, in the evening or in the afternoon and I'd mm. go on the meet up to my grannies and I'd watch Neighbours and Blockbusters and Home and yeah. Away Going uh, for gold the full whack Yeah, yeah, yeah that, yeah, that was it <laughs> Henry was Kelly it. get in there Yeah, yeah <laughs> and um, so, you know I, I look back on that as a time when the, when the school failed me like, you know because I wasn't a bad kid and it was like but no one kind of stepped up and went Jesus, Alan, what's wrong with you? Mm. No so at the time I was thinking about leaving school and uh, the principal at the time, comes up and goes, Mr. Clark, are you still thinking about leaving? I said, ah, sorry. I said, uh, I don't know. I don't know if I will or not. He said, well, I put it to you this way. He says, you come in here next week. I'll kick you out myself. I leave, so sir. And that was it. So I put, you know, I, I decided I wanted to. Did you leave on your own accord then? Or well, did he actually come back up to you and go? No, well, if I came back in, he was going to kick me out. So mm-hmm. I left myself like <laughs> uh, I so he, may, he, he effectively made you leave yourself. So nobody yeah, could yeah. come up to him and go, yeah, kick that young lad out of school. Why'd you do that? Drop out, or I'll kick you out. So that was the school that, that kicked me out. But now I have I have a very smug moment every now and again because my mm. now office overlooks the school that I got kicked out of. <laughs> <laughs> so it's a nice little fuck you <laughs> to, to the school. Did you find when you were studying was that something that spurred you on? You know, people who you think about years ago had no faith in you and kind of mm. put you in that bracket of ah waster mm, mm, mm. comes from a bad lot we don't like him comes from a poor part of town he's yeah, not one yeah. of us you know yeah. did did that kind of spur you on to go you know something oh, that that always has that's that's always in in music in acting and anything nothing you know very much like kind of michael jordan kind of thing of nothing will spur me on more than telling me i can't do something <laughs> you know very much oh can i not fucking watch me you know I, i'll do it i was spite <laughs> <laughs> pure pure masochist you know i'll cut my nose off to spite my face just to prove you wrong <laughs> is it a healthy it. thing no it's to not. do that do you get to a point where okay you've put in a lot of work just to prove people wrong you've proved them wrong then mm. what do you do well that's the thing you know it's, it's, what's the motivation it's, after that you know it's at what cost mm. at what cost does that come to yourself like yeah. I mean, it never came at a cost. It just spurred me on to kind of do better. And it's no hard mm. to have a, you know, a motivating factor within it. Mm. So that was the school that kicked me out of. And then when I when I had to go down to the school then to do the research, and I walked into the school, and the teacher goes, Jesus, says, Alan Clark, if ever a lad was less academic. And I was like, well, maybe if fuckers like you took a bit of interest in me and wondered why I was struggling back then. Yeah. Instead of colluding to get me kicked out, you know, maybe maybe that might have helped. Mm. So, you know, I, I went from there then, did did the degree, did the research. Um, and, you know, a lot of people would certainly go, Jesus, how did how did he get there? Like, mm. but but um, I got there because you know, this is kind of the way I've been made. So the majority of therapists are what's called wounded healers. So they've gone through some shit before themselves. 
you know, kind of imprints on them than to help other people. But don't you but, want a therapist who has been through it? Not somebody who's going mm, to go, well, mm. to quote from this book here, you want somebody yeah, who's yeah, yeah. been through the rough, somebody who has yeah, life yeah. experience. Like, would you go to a 25-year-old therapist? Well, you have to be 23 to even start studying this, mm. you know, so I mean, you do need life experience, you know. So, I mean, my, you know, I grew up, father was an alcoholic, you know, mother was depressed. I didn't realize that at the time, but, you know, parents were on again, off again. I was the eldest, so very much, you know, as as what usually happens in families, the eldest becomes the, the responsible one. You mm. know, you, you, you shoulder some of that burden. Um, so I was used to carrying a lot of stuff like yeah. Um, and of course the irony being or perhaps not ironic you know I was the same one that had a tumour on my spine removed a few years ago like because <laughs> uh, you know psychologically carrying so much like let's go back here mm. you had a tumour mm. removed from your spine yeah yeah what happened yeah. there uh, had a tumour removed from my spine <laughs> <laughs> I'd, su- I'd suffered I'd suffered with back pain for, for years it was always I was always at the doctors it was always you know this has gone down a whole other path so I had you know now, I remember was- years I remember years ago when we were gigging in that you'd mentioned you'd, you'd back pain See, it's one of your lyrics me back is fucked me back's fucked I've got me scoliosis there you go so if I was not the uh, best backs, I'm damn near the I'm closest I'm damn near the closest there you yeah, go yeah yeah <laughs> um yeah, so I'd had back pain for years and I was just really suffering with it. At the time, I was in fucking agony with it. Like, I was going, having to go to the hospitals. They were giving me injections that they give to pregnant women during labor and stuff like mm-hmm. this. And I was getting to the point where I went to the doctor and I was like, oh, you give you this. It's like, no, no, I want to know what's wrong. Like, this is this is getting ridiculous. So I sent for an MRI. I was like, I never forget, um, I had to ring the doctor to get the results. And he, he rings and he goes, uh, yeah, no, no, no. oh, you have a tumor on your L4, L5. I was like, what the fuck? Like, oh, we'll have to send you for another MRI. So we'll send you for another MRI. They give you an injection. It gives you contrast for the MRI. You can get a better, better, better image of the tumor and stuff like that. I went to, went to see the neurosurgeon because it's spinal, spinal surgery. Obviously, your spine is connected to your brain, so you have to neurosur- you have to speak a, speak to a neurosurgeon. And I went to him, and he said, well, he said it's unlikely. Uh, to be cancerous at that region because you usually don't get cancer cells there. If it's anywhere, it's probably going to be in somewhere like your brain. I was like, what the fuck? Like a fucking brain tumor? Cancer to the brain? Can you get fucking cancer to the brain? What the hell? Like, and so we'd send you for another MRI. We'd send you for a full full spinal, full full brain MRI, which is, I actually have a very cool MRI image of my own brain. Uh, I, I took <laughs> it off the disc before I gave it to the doctor. So that's, that's pretty cool. Um <laughs> But I was waiting two weeks um, for it to come back, whether it was if there was cancer, or if there was you know tumors Jesus anywhere else. Christ. What's what's it like during them two weeks? Oh man, it was fucking horrible. What it goes through your head? Yeah, I tell you exactly what was going through my head. I remember being in my ex's car, and I remember I just broke down crying, and it wasn't even for myself. It wasn't even around my own mortality. It was like, what if this baby has to grow up without a father? And obviously that was triggering stuff in my own self, not you know having not having a father that was present and stuff like that. So it was you know resonating on a on a, on a deeper level. Yeah. Um, but I just kind of broke down crying of what what if the baby is grow up without a father? Um, I think it's not, perfectly natural to think that way. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. and then, then there's the older children as well, yeah. like you know. And so the results came back. It was you know no no other tumors were grand. So was scheduled for surgery then. Relationship at the time was falling apart ex had 
you know, I won't go into that. She she done some stuff. You know, that's 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 not a story to tell because that, that's about her. But it wasn't just me. You know, it wasn't it wasn't me that was falling apart. She was, and the whole thing was then as well. And um, so I got called in to have the surgery. And in the in the consultation before the surgery, uh, that I'd had a couple of weeks beforehand, and uh, and the surgeon then reminded me on on the night before the surgery, he goes, oh, you know, just you know, sign this. You know, like you know, possible, you know. Possible complications could lead to paralysis, uh, bowel and bladder control, uh, sexual dysfunction. Um, and I'm like, what the fuck? So I'm like, okay. So my ex was coming in. She had anxiety herself. I'm like, I can't tell her this shit. Like, <laughs> she, mm. she won't be able to handle this. Yeah. Um, and so I'll never forget the nurse came in and she was checking my pulse. And the, she had me on the machine. She's like, oh, that's pretty high. Okay. I was like, yeah, yeah. No, she's fine, grand. And on the surface, I was... I was grand. You know, you yeah. wouldn't have known there was a bother me. She goes, oh, maybe it must be that machine. I get another one. And she's like, no, it's just, that's still very high. So she took it the old-fashioned way. Um, and then the next day, they're checking me, going, oh, yeah, your pulse was very high there yesterday. You were having a problem with the machine. But obviously, internally, my fucking yeah, central yeah. nervous and my autonomic nervous system was going mad. At Which the it is entitled to do with that Yeah, stage. it's a pure, pure fight-or-flight mode. It's like, oh, you might be paralyzed. You know, your dick might not work. You might be pissing and shitting yourself for the rest of your life if mm. he if he nicks the wrong nerve or there's some yeah. sort of complication. I never knew, as long as I've known you really, that you've mm. suffered mental issues. Mm-hmm. I've, I've, I've never known that. So you've obviously become very good at hiding it or disguising it. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, most people are, you know, most people with the, with, with depression, uh, you know, you, you mask it. Mm. You know, you do, you do certainly put on the mask. But, you know, mine, mine stems back to my childhood. You know, parents, my father, um, absence of father. He was, he was there, but he wasn't there, kind of thing. Um, you know, kind of no love there. You know, there's certainly no affection in my house. You know, very, very stereotypical Irish father. You know, you're, you're not getting your hugs. You're not getting. I love you. You're not. You know, I'm not going to your games. I don't give a fuck what you're doing. You know, mm. it was very much that. Um, and then all the all the arguments, the fighting in the house over his drinking and money and. You know, it's like um, it's like that line Big L has. You know, I wasn't poor; I was poor. I couldn't, I couldn't afford, afford the or. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's what a favorite lines. Line. Yeah, me too. Brilliant. Yeah, Absolutely yeah, yeah. brilliant. Yeah. yeah. So I grew up. As I grew up in a grew up in a council estate. Uh, grew up with you know hand me downs from my cousin and being embarrassed about that. Oh, she look. Know, I, and, I think we all got hand me downs. Like, how yeah, many yeah, times yeah. have you looked back at pictures and go, Jesus, that T-shirt was about three times too big for me. What were you told? Yeah. You'll grow into it. You'll be grand. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, so I, I've suffered with it for since I was a teenager. Like, you know, going mm. back to those going back to those times, n- never, never diagnosed. And I remember when, when my marriage broke up and I remember saying to my ex-wife, like, it's like, you know, do you, do, you, do you think, you know, I have depression? Oh, God, yeah. <laughs> just fucking flat out like Jeez. that like, oh oh god yeah so after after the break with the marriage i went uh i went to therapy for the first time and this this will tell you like how bad therapists can say the wrong thing um and you know there's a running joke in, in my family and i'm sure there is in every family where there's the pet you know there's the golden boy or the golden girl you know the favorite and that was always a joke in my house that my younger brother was the nicky is the he's the pet he's the golden child um and I remember, I remember talking about this in, in, in therapy and I'd only had about three or four sessions uh, and she turned around and she said to me, well, some people are easier to love. And I was like, well, I'm not fucking coming back here. 
So you're telling me the exact thing that I've had in my head since a child, as a child does internalize these things, that there's something wrong with me, that I'm unlovable, that I'm the problem. Do you think she meant it like that? Thinking about it now, from your point of view, as a a psychotherapist. I I would certainly say, in my experience, I wouldn't, there's no way I'd say something like that to a client so early on in the session. Mm. When, you know, a therapeutic relationship hasn't been built up and I certainly wouldn't deliver. I wouldn't deliver it like that. Um, so whether she meant it or, or didn't mean it, um, her timing and her delivery were, were way off. And it just fed into everything that, that I believe that. As, and that's what children do, that they internalize that. Not that mommy and daddy have a problem. It's that I'm the problem. Did that affect your mental health then after? No, I, I don't. I don't think so necessarily. It just definitely made me not want to go back there. Right. Now, as I said, later on then in life, I met my ex-fiance, started going to therapy, had a really good therapist, you know, really, you know, really helped. Um, and, you know, certainly was, you know, kind of, I suppose, having having the, the kind of words of encouragement from someone in the profession that says, actually, you'd be really suited to this. It was mm. certainly, certainly helped uh, at the time. It was a big commitment at the time. I was saving for a wedding and I was like, you know, I'll try this, I'll do this certificate course and I'll see how it, see how it fits. And, you know, as I said, thankfully, thankfully it took off. When you were studying it, did you ever consider, ah, I'll help with it. I'll just no. go get a job somewhere and I'll do something and just get out of this. No, never, never, never crossed my mind. Um, it's something I love. It's something I'm interested in. And, you know, I think that that's always been evident in everyone and, you know, tutors and, you know, people in my class will be like, oh, you, yeah, you'll definitely make it in this. Like, you know, you will, you know, you're, you're kind of built for this kind of thing. All like, you needed yeah. was that encouragement. Yeah, just, so, yeah, just someone to go, actually, you know, you might be okay at this. And, mm. you know, for me to kind of go, oh, Jesus, maybe, maybe I would. Um, and, you know, like, I think I'm out of my degree and probably my master's class as well. You know, I'm one of the few people in full-time private practice. You know, a lot, a lot of therapists might do a couple of days in a day service, have a few yeah. private clients. Um, you know, I, I teach workshops as well. I get brought into places to give talks and, you know, stuff like that. And um, but ultimately, I'm, you know, I'm my own boss and, I, and I'm in full time private practice. And, you know, that's, you know, I think that that comes from, you know, being good at the job because I'm good at the job because I'm interested in the job and I'm. You know, I'm always reading. We, you know, when when we're finished tonight, I get into bed. I'll be I'll be reading the book before shutting down. You know, that's that's what I do every mm. every night. I'll wake up in the morning. I'll meditate, and you know, that's 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 what I do because I enjoy it. And I think once you enjoy something, you know, you'll be good at because it. it's not a chore. You're not doing it because you have to do it. True. You're doing it because you want to do it. What was it like when you finally qualified? Um. Yeah, it was great, great feeling. Oh, I, I had a big moment after my masters. When when I finished my masters, uh, treated myself to to a trip to Dubai with uh, with my ex girlfriend, and we were standing outside um, the Dubai Mall. It's the, it's the biggest shopping mall in the world. It's right beside the, the Burj Khalifa, tallest building in mm-hmm. the world. And every half hour, they have the the fountain display. And she didn't see this at the time, but I was at the fountain, and I just kind of had a little kind of tear to myself because I was like fucking hell came from a council state grew up with fuck all entirely put myself through college a lot of the time I was working three day a week 
you know, I fucking scrimped and saved to be able to pay those college fees. Did my clinical placement, you know, had to go into private practice. Private practice took off, went, did a master's. And here I am in Dubai with all the fucking opulence and wealth. I'm standing here going, yeah, I fucking earned this. What you've done is it's it's absolutely amazing. And you are an inspiration to anybody listening to this. Does a part of you regret not doing it earlier in life? Um, no, I think I think I think I did it when when I when I could do it. You know, I think you know some people would say, "Oh, it's destiny, it was fate, you did it when you were meant to do it." You know, it's the law of attraction is meant to be. I was like, "No, no, that's like I did it when I did it, and I decided that this was for me." Mm. You know, just at that time, it was as I said, I didn't know what else I wanted to do, so. I was kind of like, oh, shit, <laughs> I hope this works. <laughs> and, and and thankfully it did. And then, you know, you get to the point where you're teaching workshops and you're giving talks and teaching classes and stuff like that. Mm. And I was like, oh, shit, you know, I'm, I'm the guy that was doing nothing down the back of the class. It goes to show you when you're giving your, uh, your CAO application and you're told that maybe 17, some people at 16, mm. what do you want to do? At 16? Yeah, yeah, yeah. At 16 years old? What, what do I want to do? do for the rest I, I want to fucking try and shift that young one in my class. Absolutely. <laughs> That's all I'm worried That's about. That's all I'm curious about. <laughs> Cans, beer, yeah, yeah, yeah. women. I, I didn't I didn't even drink. I didn't drink until I was like 21. <laughs> yeah, you know, first, first time I got drunk was by accident at a party drinking champagne. And then I thought it was fucking puffy. I <laughs> 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 oh, fucking P. Diddy going around with glasses of champagne. And the white fucking coat and everything. The shiny yeah, pants. Yeah, Wait yeah. you see. There's pictures of that floating around somewhere. <laughs> 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 yeah. And that was that. That's the, and it's very common for people that grow up in that. You have a hypersensitivity to alcohol, like you know, because you see the you see the damage that it does. When you went into private practice full time, mm. was it easy to do because you were made redundant? Was it a good to get that kick in the arse to say, right, get out there and do it full time, or was it a scary thing? Oh, it was scary. I mean, Jesus. I mean, as it was, I had to take a job, and when I was working three days or five days, I always had a set wage at the end of the week. And then whatever I was mm. doing in the private practice was kind of carrying me through it. Mm. So even if I had no clients or I had one or two clients, I was like, well, I still have my money from, from my day job. Yeah, yeah. That gets taken away. Now, uh, you know, and a few people had said to me, oh, it'll be the best thing for you. You know, you'll be able to do it. And in my head, I was going, yeah, I know. <laughs> uh, I know I will. Like, you know, I don't, I just yeah. don't want to have to. I know. Because yeah, <laughs> yeah. I like, I like, having the fucking set wage and I like having the you know the extra that I was starting to do building course, the practice yeah. um, so I th- there was always that confidence of because I wanted to do it like it, it's kind of it can be a good thing and a bad thing but once I set my mind to it that's it like you know sometimes you can get kind of emotionally burned out and you're wondering like, what, what am I doing here like you know you get what's mm. called compassion fatigue and you know you doubt if you're making any sort of a difference or you know of what you're doing as a purpose like, like what the fuck am I doing I'm sitting here just listening to someone and talking and saying a few bits and you know but mm. there's, there's there's one or two times if, if if i've done nothing else in in my career where i've i've a letter handwritten letter from a young lad that was in college he came to me after um he'd attempted suicide or he was strongly strongly considering suicide and we worked through a lot of the a lot of the issues um and i got a so my office is in a resource center. I have a full-time office rented there. And so the staff at reception, go, oh, let her there if you will. And I was like, 
fucking spam who's trying to sell me something here now like malpractice insurance or something like mm. and I opened it up and it was handwritten letter from this young guy and in it he had said like uh, you know kind of it's because of you I'm here like you know my mother has a son my my brothers have a brother and it's it's because of you and I'm in college and you know I'm not struggling as much and you know so if I did nothing else mm. he's alive and, and and I've heard that a few times another another client I have she still comes to see me every few weeks you know she was suicidal at the time that she'd had she'd actually attempted suicide at the time and she said to me sometime afterwards she's like I knew if it didn't work with you that was it I was going to kill myself so I was that kind of last hope for her so you know there's there's people that have been able to you know get the relationship back on track there's children that have been born because those relations have been back on track there's mm-hmm. people alive because of you know what, what I've been able to do and you know no matter what I do in the rest of my life, there's one or two people that are alive from just from what I've been able to do with them. Does that lead to a lot of pressure on you then? That when you are seeing a client, you go, this has to work? Um, no, I think, and, and I think a lot of, a lot of uh, trainee therapists and stuff will relate to this. At the start, you're very much, you know, you're leaning forward in the chair. You know, you're like, you know, kind of let me help you. Let, let, let me fix you. Uh, mm. this 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 kind of mentality. I never forget when when I was doing my certificate, and you know at the start of it, and everyone's nervous, and you're like, Geez, you don't know what's, you don't know what to expect, and go around asking everyone, why do you want to do this? And I remember a few people, <laughs> they didn't go on, uh, but a few of them go, oh well, I'm the one everyone comes to for advice. All my friends come to me for advice, um, and a lot of people think that that's what therapy is. Therapy is going to go in and give you advice. No, no, I'm going to empower you to change your life i'm not going to tell you what to do mm. you know you you need to do that and you can take it all then on yourself that you know because very often these people that are looking for advice are probably their entire life lived their life based on what everyone else has said to them mm. and then they're handing that power over to someone else to go you know you tell me to leave my husband you tell me to change my job because uh, i i can't do this and it's about asking them well what is it that you want to do Mm. you know and then they're empowered to to make the decision so all those ones you know in my class in the certificate course that were saying well i'm the one that everyone comes to for advice they didn't go on to do it Mm. (laughs) because that's not the job as a therapist you're not there to tell people what to do how to live their life Mm. you're there to listen and maybe i presume you'd make a diagnosis like you could say to somebody well that's anxiety or that's stress or that's you Low would identify those things. You would identify those things, but you know, as therapists, you don't diagnose. The problem with diagnosis, like, so if you go to your doctor, he's going to diagnose you with depression, and so all that gets treated is the depression. Here's medication mm. that we're going to treat. Um, we're going to treat your depression, but really, with depression and anxiety, you're not treating the root cause. You're treating the symptoms. You're masking it. You're yeah. taking a painkiller so, for a broken ankle. Absolutely. And that's the thing with, with antidepressants and, and medication as well. You're not treating the root cause. Mm. You know, so for me, if, you know, if I, and I think I did, I think I, oh, actually, that, that there's another fucking thing about that therapist now that I think of it. She would only see me on the condition that I went to my doctor to get antidepressants, which is something you don't do, like. No. So I, I was prescribed antidepressants. I didn't stay on them for long. I just, I didn't like them. Um, 
And so, you know, if I had a stat on antidepressants, would I have ever actually dealt with the root cause of my depression? No, because all I'm doing is treating the symptom. As soon as you come off the tablets, the problem's still there. Mm. You know, the issues from childhood are, are still there. Yeah. Um, and so that's that's why, you know, when people come into me, you know, and if they're on medication, I say, look, statistically, the best the best course of action is medication and therapy. But many times people come into me and go, I went down to a doctor. He gave me a prescription for tablets. They're at home in a drawer. Yeah, I don't, I don't want, want to use them. Tablets. Yeah. I don't mm. want to take tablets. I want to I want to address this uh, mm. at, at the root. You were talking earlier about how you spend all day listening to people's problems. How do you switch off? Um, it's, it's kind of one of the reasons why I don't have an office in my house or an office out the back or anything like that. I like being able to leave the office, you know, lock the door and kind of leave it there. Now, look, there's sometimes, you know, and it's not that I don't ever think of a client, you know, when I'm out of the office, you know, you'd be always, if I'm reading something and go, oh, that's, that would work with this individual or, you know, you'd be kind of thinking of something, you know, about them. Um, but I'm pretty good at not not carrying that kind of stuff. Um, usually, yeah. Uh, plus, you know, I I have I, I attend therapy myself. I still go to therapy every every two weeks. You know, I, I'd always say to clients, you know, I wouldn't sell a product that I don't use. So, yeah, I've always gone to therapy. You know, so I did fifty hours of personal therapy as part of my degree, twenty or twenty five hours as part of my masters. And then I've always, I've always continued since. You know, I'd say to clients that I wouldn't sell a product that I don't use. Mm. Um, and you know the way some people would go to the gym to keep themselves in shape, I go to therapy to keep to keep my head in shape. Well, your head you is know, muscle, I suppose, isn't it? Well, I mean, your head is everything. If, mm. I mean, if your head's not right, you're not going to be able to go to the gym. It's like you know, I presume when it comes to good mental health, you have to constantly work at it. In the, in the same way that if you want to run the marathon, you need to train, mm-hmm. you know what I mean, every second or third day and you put a system in place. It doesn't mm-hmm. mean that you run the marathon and in 20 years time you can run it again whenever you want. Mm-hmm. You'll be mm-hmm. goosed, you know. Yeah, 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 yeah. So yeah. I presume the same applies for good mental health. You have to keep it up. You have to exercise it. So generally when a, when a client comes in for the first session, I'll say, you know, we meet for we meet for eight sessions starting off. We meet once a week and they're kind of like, well, once a week. I was like, well, yeah, it's the same as going to the gym. You know, if you come in here and we open up something and then you fuck off for three weeks, you know, what's sh- what, what shape are you going to be in? Mm. Having maybe touched on something very raw that where do you go with that? So, mm. you know, it's about that continuation. Like therapy is, is the 50 minutes, but really, and it's, and it's the same as the gym, you know, the the muscle builds in the days when you're resting. Mm. It repairs, you know, the, yeah. The, the, the stuff comes up outside of therapy. Yeah. You know, I I might plant a seed, I might say something, and that just triggers a thought in them and you know, that that's in their head then for the week and it goes, Oh, that reminded me about the time and you mm. know, people and people be coming in talking about horrific stuff. And it's like, Oh, I haven't thought about that since and you know, I've never spoken about that with anyone and Have you ever had a therapy session that, that kept you up all night? You know, somebody's situation, has it ever haunted you? Uh I have to, I have to watch what I say here. I like I I've heard horrific abuse, horrific kind of stuff, you know, and you, and you hear stuff of people people being sexually abused, physically abused, and you think, fuck me, that's that's as bad as it gets, like. And then someone else comes in, and you're like, oh, oh fuck, I I I I totally heard it all, you know. And as much as 
you know, as much as therapy and, and doing the work can be kind of life affirming and seeing the change, you're also hearing what's happened to these people, like, you know, and you can and you can despair for humanity at times. There was one time, I'm not going to give any specific details, I was made aware of a very, very, very serious crime and sought advice on it. Uh, every, every therapist sees a supervisor and it was basically decided that if you disclose this, you're putting yourself and your client at risk. So that that kept me up for a while of deciding should I do something, should I not? And it kind of came off the back of um, kind of similar to The Sopranos where some mob guy was in therapy and um, hadn't disclosed anything about crime or anything like that, but they murdered the therapist on the kind of expectation that they might know something. So it's kind of like, well, are you at risk? Is your client going to be at risk if if, if you pursue this further? So that, that that's probably the toughest one. That was probably one of the toughest ones I've had to deal with. So you have to make a decision as to what can I do right by my client and what can I do that's morally right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and it's the same with, you know, and I mean, you, you face it all the time, you know, in therapy, you know, someone discloses about sexual abuse in childhood. And, you know, you have to know it's the law has changed now, so it's illegal not to report it. But prior to that, it was kind of, you were expected to, but you didn't have to. Okay. And you have to, you know, you have to kind of weigh up of when, when you when you pull the trigger on that of, you know, because generally speaking, you know, clients come in, it's the very thing they need to talk about. But they know if they give me a name, I'm going to have to report it. Mm. And what are they going to do? They're not going to talk about it then. Yeah. Can so, they say to you, I want to talk to you about something, but I don't want you to disclose it? Well, what, what I would say is if you give me a name, that, that's something that, that may need to be reported. Now, you're always trying to encourage the, the client to report it themselves. Again, it's about mm. empowering them. Yeah. And it's not just about empowering them. It's about, I mean, the, it's under the Children First Act. So it's really, it's ensuring that this individual has no access to other children and no other children mm-hmm. are at risk as a result of this person. So <laughs> to, to be honest, I'm always delighted when someone says the individual is dead because it's like, okay, now we, now we can talk about it. Yeah. Yeah, you know, yeah. there's no, you know, you can you can talk freely. I don't have to be worrying about this. Is something I need to I need to report. You're not worrying if I'm going to report this, and we can we can start to heal that. Then, so you know, there is those ethical dilemmas um, that 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 you're faced with. How do you deal with then? You're finished with that client, and you've just mm. heard something horrific. Mm-hmm. Then somebody else comes in and goes, "Oh, my husband always leaves his cups in the sink," and you're going, <laughs> "Fuck, you think you have problems?" or is it a case that we all have problems be it big or small Mm. we all have problems and what what i say to clients is there's no hierarchy of suffering you know it's all relative what's that saying there's always somebody in the world worse off than you Mm. Mm. that's not the case we all suffer equally effectively yeah exactly and and actually what what i get you know particularly clients and we talk about self-esteem as well particularly the clients with low self-esteem will be coming in thinking, I'm wasting your time. You know, oh sure, I'm just coming in here talking about my husband is leaving the cups or, you know, whatever it is, he keeps leaving the milk out. Oh, and I can imagine the stuff you listen to. So they're already belittling their own experience because okay. I'm not I'm not as bad as someone else. I'm taking up your time here. And you know, I have to say to them, it's like, you're paying for a service. This this is your experience. You know, this is it's all relative. This is yours. You know, you you don't worry about that. This is your time to come in 
and talk about whatever it is you need to talk about. You know, don't and our people will say, you know, people coming in now during lockdown and stuff go, oh, and so I know everyone is in the same boat. I was like, I, and I'll say to them, I don't care about everyone else. I say, I care about you. Let's let's just let's just worry about what you're experiencing now. And mm-hmm. I said, let's just let everyone else worry about themselves, or they can worry about it when they come in here. Should we all go to therapy? Hundred percent. Even if we think we're perfect, our lives are perfect. We're not, Everything we're, is we're not, we're not perfect. We're not perfect because we're all flawed human beings. You know, we're all human beings, 7 billion of us, 8 billion of us. We're all flaws. We all have our own issues. You didn't grow up in a perfect childhood. You can't have a perfect parent because there's no perfect people. And even if it's just to unload, even if it's, you know, to work through childhood stuff. And, you know, I think, I think, you know, people in positions of power especially need to need to go to therapy. Uh, I think I think we'll probably do a podcast perhaps on it around, you know, my own experience and with, with James, my son having to go through the Irish court system as a as a as a single dad and stuff like that like be interesting yeah yeah and you know you you go up against a judge who you know and this isn't under any kind of legal guidelines y- your life your relationship with your children comes down to the whim of a judge and his mood on a given day a friend of mine's a copper and when I was going when I was going through this he says Ali says he says, you're walking in there one nil down. Mm. I was like, what, what do you mean? He says, because you have a pair of balls. And he's been in the court. Obviously, he's a copper. He's had to yeah. give evidence. And he's, he's like, you're, you're, you're a man. You're one nil down walking in. Shocking, isn't it? If Alan Clark, 18 years of age, is sitting right beside you now, what would you say to him? Well, fuck me. Jeez. <laughs> <laughs> Alan Clark at 18 was, was not in a good place. Um... I would say to him, I'm here for you. I got you, buddy. Stick, you know, stick with it. You get through it. That's what I needed. That's what I needed at the time. I needed someone to go, I'm here for you. You're not going through it on your own. You know, I believe in you. You can do it. And that's, you know, a lot of therapy is, is... you know, very often, you know, as a therapist, you, you, you can be essentially reparenting and becoming that safe haven and that supporter for individuals, you know, believe in yourself. I see a lot of strength that maybe you don't see. I hear how you survived all of that kind of thing. Mm. Um, and, you know, just, just being that person that, that identifies the strengths and being that person that maybe they've never had of going, I hear your pain. I, I see you suffering. Do you think that sometimes you are better for suffering because it's made you the person you are? Oh, yeah. I mean, in, in terms of being able to do the job, as I said, you know, I've always been kind of very introspective, you know, very much the, the, the kind of introvert, um, kind of very much into self-analysis, asking myself, why did I do that? You know, why? You know, what was that about? What, what, what's what been going on there? Um, and by figuring out a lot of my own shit, you know, I can ask that question of a client of, well, do you think, you know, for you, do you think there might be a situation where, you know, do you think this might have played a, played a part or do you think there might be? And a lot of that can be just pulling from my own kind of self-analysis of, well, that's that's what I was doing. And then you hear from other clients have gone, oh, OK, there just seems to be a, a, a similar theme around mm. something here. And you can put it to a client of going, well, do you think maybe you did that because, you know, they think there might have been some element of, and, you know, they'll go, yes or no. You know, go, actually, that's fucking, that's exactly what it is. You know, that's, mm. 
that's exactly why you did it or that's exactly what I was thinking and you know so you know having gone through it you know it, it is that wounded healer you know I can relate I know I know their experience you know, I know the experience of therapy I know the experience of of depression you know and it, and it fucking kicks me arse every every now and again flares up maybe I don't know depending on depending on situations in life you know it could be couple of times a year maybe once a year and you know you kind of gotta go gotta go through it for for a couple of weeks you know and um try to try to pull myself out of it and uh, you know work can be work can be a good a good release from it do you get much from being a psychotherapist in the sense that working with other people helps your mental health um i think i think very much in terms of that existential piece around purpose and meaning I mean, my 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 career has purpose. You know, I'm I'm helping people. Mm. You know, and uh, the Dalai Lama in one of his books, he talks. He, he, I think it's the the art of happiness at work or something like that uh, is the book, and he talks that you know there's there's three kinds of work. There's your job, there's your career, and there's your calling. Your job is your nine to five. You get paid at the end of the week. Your career is, I want to get up to management. You know, I want to work my way up the corporate ladder, kind of thing. That's your career. And then your calling is particularly people in the in the helping professions, doctors, nurses. You know, it's not an easy job. Why would you put yourself in that position? Mm-hmm. Like? That has been therapeutic, I think. Yeah, for <laughs> for you perhaps. <laughs> <laughs> See, don't 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 think I didn't know what you're doing, P. I know you're putting it all on me like doing. <laughs> you're doing what I normally do on a given day. <laughs> <laughs> there, there's Alan, Alan, some of Alan Clark's life. <laughs> no, it's brilliant. I really look forward to delving more and, um, you know, everything else obviously that goes with mental health, anxiety, stress, self-esteem, depression, suicide, all of that. I really look forward to hearing a little bit more. And if you liked what you heard, give us a rating, subscribe, leave a comment. We'd love to hear from you. If you want to get in touch, you can email, by the way, straighttalkingpodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. You can find us on Twitter at straighttalkingpodcast pod that's str8 because we're cool talking pod uh, we're on no, Facebook. We're, we're, it's, it's not because we're cool it's because that was the only thing i could get <laughs> <laughs> you're only allowed 15 15 uh, character usernames on twitter and straight talking was taken <laughs> so Bastards. we're not we're, we're not cool you. we're just out of options <laughs> how, how do you think we ended up in hip-hop <laughs> yeah 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 we're not, we can't sing we're not cool we're just out no. of options we'll rap no. <laughs> <laughs> we're on facebook we're on instagram as well so uh, i want to say a big shout out by the way to fiona Bryan for the podcast music this guy He's an amazing producer and beat maker. Big up. You can catch him on Facebook at FOBB Singer Rapper Podcast Chancer, just like myself. Then he will sort you out. So, Alan Clark, last word with you, dude. Leave us with a message of inspiration from your unique look on life. Oh, Jesus. Um, don't give up, particularly with the experience of depression. And it's what I see with clients all the time and what I know myself. Um, you know, with, with that, with, with depression, you know, there's no hope. You know, you can't see any future. You can't see your way out of, um, out of the depression. And what I'd always relate to clients when they start talking about something in the future, I'm like, yes, here we go. There's hope because okay. when you're talking about the future, you're talking, you're talking about hope. But like, you know, yeah. you're imagining something that that could happen in the future. 
don't give up. I love it. And mm. uh, stay tuned for many, many more episodes down the line as well. Really looking forward to digging into this. And I'm looking forward to learning more about mental health. So I hope that uh, other people will do that as well. Join us. We're going to dig deep. We're going to straight talk. No bullshit. No sugarcoat. That's exactly what mm. we're going to do. In the meantime, don't give up. Don't give up. Straight talk. Mental health. Straight talk. Mental health. Straight talk. Mental health.